Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Schneer Zalman Newfield. Today, we're going to explore a foundational work of modern sociology of religion written by Emile Durkheim, titled The Elementary Forms of Religious Life, and first published in French in 1912. I'm delighted to explore this book with my mentor and friend, Stephen Lukes. Professor Stephen Lukes earned a PhD from Oxford University. He went on to become a fellow in politics and sociology at Balliol College, Oxford. He was then in turn a professor of political and social theory at the European University Institute Florence and a moral uh, philosophy uh, uh, scholar at the University of Siena and of sociology at the London School of Economics, following which he became a professor of sociology at New York University. He is now a professor emeritus at New York University. I'm so glad um, that we're able to have you on the program today. It's such a pleasure to be here. Oh, great. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to study the work of Emile Durkheim? Well, I'll do it briefly. I was uh, a student. I was in England at Oxford University studying philosophy, politics, and economics. And I became very interested in social theory and was interested in writing about something to do maybe with Marxist theory. And my supervisor, uh, my director of studies, suggested that instead of writing about Sorel, which I had thought about, he said, had I read any Durkheim? I went away and read Durkheim's first great book, the division on the division of labor, and was somewhat impressed but not convinced. Then I read the elementary forms of the religious life, which we're going to discuss today, and it blew my mind. I was kind of astonished by this book because it was not only about very important fundamental philosophical questions uh, about the very fundament, fundamentals of how we know things, about knowledge, and it was about religion. Uh, and offered a very general theory of religion, and it just seemed to be about so many different things at such a at such a massive uh, in, in, with such massive implications that I thought this was who I'd like to work on, and so I then uh, did do that. I, I uh, decided to f- do my doctorate on this on this great thinker. As it turned out, it was a very good idea, and um, I was also very fortunate. Uh, that I then be, my, switched my supervisor to the, the great anthropologist, uh, Evans Pritchard, Edward Evans Pritchard, who was probably the greatest living social anthropologist at the time. And uh, I worked under his supervision for the subsequent period when I, when I wrote the thesis, the dissertation, which then became a book. 
Right. And I have to say, I've known you now for, for, for many years, and we've uh, discussed elementary forms uh, a great deal. And I had no idea that it had such a, a profound uh, role in your decision to uh, take on the, the, the challenging work yeah. of studying Durkheim. Yes, yes. That book made the difference, definitely. <laughs> well, that that's very propitious for our uh, and very appropriate for our our discussion today. Um, so, before we get started with with some of the the details about um, Durkheim's life and and his work, um, I'm curious if you could uh, talk a little bit about what it means that a book like The Elementary Forms is considered a, a classic uh, in uh, the, the sociology. What does that mean that a book is um, a classic? A classic? Well, there's, there's lots of thinking about this, and I'm not sure I have anything to contribute, especially except to say, yeah, a classic is, of course, a text, let's say, or a, a whatever it is that survives. And why things survive, of course, there are lots of different reasons for it. I think in the case of a, a, a book like this, in in uh, intellectual in an intellectual field like sociology, it has to do with already what well, I already mentioned this uh, something that touches on big questions that that people care about that survives over time and opens up keeps opening up new questions. I mean, often a classic is a, a text which will. Uh, be subject to different interpretations. People will not agree about what its meaning is, except they'll agree that somehow it's important to disagree about it. And so people will will have different views. And what I think about Durkheim, uh, and in this book in particular maybe, is that um, it, it, it continues to be fresh in the sense that people keep asking new questions and finding interesting answers in it. So it it's classic in the sense that it goes on interesting people by opening up new avenues of thinking. Right, right. And it's certainly worth bearing that in mind as we talk about some of the claims that Durkheim makes in this book, uh, claims which at the time or, or since then, um, scholars have come to challenge or even reject and uh, to, to realize that it still holds a place of prominence, as you say, because of how fruitful it is for intellectual inquiry, rather than that this is a work of sort of perfection or something that every line or every central claim even in the book is somehow, you know, beyond reproach. Very far from true in this case. <laughs> right, right. So so to, to jump in a bit, um, could you tell our listeners a little bit about who Emil Durkheim was and what was the social context in which he came of age? Yeah, well, he was uh, born in France uh, in an area that was contested uh, uh, because it was, uh, you know, there was the Franco uh, there was the, the Franco-Prussian War. Uh, he was in, in, in Alsace-Lorraine, um, where um, the, 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 the question of um, uh, the, the defeat of the French, uh, were, were the, 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 the defeat was, was important. Um, the, the war was important because it, it, it raised questions about the very sources of social stability. And he... Um, was a very um uh he, he went to he was he was jewish his father was a rabbi 
the whole family had been rabbis. I mean, the, the, the forebears of his father were rabbis, but going back for generations. And so he was brought up as an Orthodox Jew in this French city of Epinal, where he um, very early on um, dissociated himself from, from being uh, an Orthodox believing Jew. Not that the um, question of... Uh, you know, it wasn't, as it were, a, a, an issue, uh, particularly, except that there is a story that he was very much influenced by a Catholic schoolmistress, but I don't know about that, how true that is. But he then um, uh, was very concerned to succeed in the French ac- uh, academic system. So he went, he tried several times to get into the the, the 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 most elite institution, the École Normale Supérieure, as it was then regarded as and was then regarded as the the, the, the pinnacle of, of intellectual um, uh, success and eventually he did get in and was uh, educated there and became in due course a teacher which was the French way you became a school teacher and then eventually a professor first at the University of Bordeaux then eventually uh, at the center of things in Paris and he was very concerned to be a success as a Frenchman, uh, not not, and so he was. This involved him rather understating, not concealing, but not making a thing of being Jewish. Um, he was very concerned to be accepted as a, a French intellectual, which he was, and um, except that, of course. Uh, there was an anti, there was an anti-Semitic um, uh, atmosphere in France, especially during the time of the so-called Dreyfus affair, which was a, a, a scandalous uh, uh, occurrence at the end of the 1890s, in which he took the side of defending this Captain Dreyfus, who had been accused, falsely accused, of betraying his country, um, and Durkheim was very much on the side of. Uh, defending Dreyfus, along with the great French writer Emile Zola. I don't know if I'm going into too much detail here. Uh, no, no, this is wonderful. This is and, wonderful. And, um, so Durkheim was, uh, but um, of course it was known, uh, well known that Durkheim was Jewish. And so, um, though he never made a thing of it, um, and indeed, as the First World War drew near, uh, the Great War of 1914, he was indeed quite publicly attacked as a Jew. Um, but um, this uh, didn't um, really uh, signify much during his lifetime for him, except for the fact that he was a great defender of human rights. And, uh, you know, and, th- and that became clearest, most clear during the time of the Dreyfus Affair, when he was a founding member of the League for the Rights of Man uh, in Bordeaux. And so uh, he, um, the, the, the way to summarize all this is to say he was a great French professor who was um, much attacked during his lifetime uh, for his writings and his thought, in particular about religion. Um, and uh, there is something to say, perhaps we'll get onto it, about the relationship between his thoughts about religion and his Jewish background. Right. Yes, I do do want to come back to that, um, mm. uh, maybe later on. But bef- be to, before that, um, 
so Durkheim wrote the elementary forms. He also wrote numerous other uh, texts, um, yes. you know, major works that are considered, again, still considered landmarks in, in, in sociology today, mm. as well as many, many other um, you know, articles and, and, and publications. Um, mm. Are there distinct features to Durkheim's sociology? Yes. His very first lecture when he became professor at Bordeaux in 1887, was called Social Solidarity. And that was his preoccupation throughout. How is it that our societies hold together? How is it that we aren't living in a chaos? What is it that, that, that binds and relates us to each other in ways that we don't even recognize? Or, I mean, his work is basically, I think, a kind of exploration of of that question all the way through what are the, what are, what are social bonds how do we understand them what is what is the way to to make sense of the fact that societies hold together how does that happen so i would say that was if you wanted one single overarching question that very general question was was it and there's a the background to this you might say goes all the way back to the french revolution I mean, when, of course, society seemed to many to fall apart, or at any rate, the question of what is it that can, you know, account for and maintain social order became central. Uh, the, the social disruption of the, of the French Revolution was, was the whole background to this. And um, Durkheim came, at, at, you know, at, at the... Uh, in in succession to, uh, I, I mean, uh, at the end of a whole succession of thinkers who had addressed this question. Another one earlier on had been Alexis de Tocqueville. And he, um, his answer was distinctive. That's what makes his sociology interesting. It was really about the question, what is society? How do individuals relate to society? What is it that binds people together into a society? Right, right. And before um, uh, Durkheim wrote The Elementary Forms, he wrote another book on suicide. Yes. And I think it, it might be uh, useful uh, to to talk a little bit about that book and especially um, what its basic approach is to yeah. religion. Well, that might be uh, the, the, his most famous book, or maybe, you know, along with the religion book, it certainly has survived uh, as a classic in the sense that we talked about it earlier. So the book on suicide is indeed about this very question of how people, how, how, how social bonds work. And that book certainly has survived, is still read, is still disputed. It, it's very controversial. Much of Durkheim's writing is very polemical and controversial, as well as attempting to be scientific. And and it was very scientific, that book, Suicide, in the sense that he used, for the first significant time by a sociologist, I'd say, statistics. I mean, that book is full of statistics. And for the time, pretty advanced statistics. He was very interested in suicide rates. Now, that book was... Uh, in a way, a remarkable, bold um, uh, achievement. It was a kind of, um, the boldness of it is very striking. Why? Because what is suicide? Suicide is the 
and the act of killing yourself, you could say is the most individual, private, intimate acts that any anyone can commit. Um, you you're departing from society. You're leaving it. You're abandoning the social life, um, and you might think people do think mostly f- for for very personal, intimate, individual reasons. Yet Durkheim thought we can look at this sociologically, and by sociologically he meant, uh, and he was in the business. He was that was his project to build up sociology as a discipline, as a professor at Bordeaux, where he there already was. And the point of this book was to say, look, I mean, implicitly to say, if we can explain suicide sociologically, the least promising, you might say, topic for a sociologist studying society to, to embark on, then that really is a mark that sociology is here to stay. So the idea was to look at the... Now, not to look at individual cases specifically, but to look at suicide rates in order to account for the fact that they vary. Uh, And if you can give an account of that, Durkheim thought, you've given an account of the social conditions under which suicide happens. And so the book develops a very remarkable and interesting, though very questionable, account of the social conditions under which the suicide rate rises or falls. And so he noticed, for example, we can't, I don't, you don't want to go into this book in detail now, I presume, but uh, for instance, the suicide rate rises in wartime. Uh, Why? Well, not surprisingly, maybe after what I've so far said, for Durkheim, that had to do with social solidarity, social cohesion. Under such condition, there is a a pulling together. People come together to feel um, connected to each other. And there was similar, uh, he had a similar sort of set of questions about crises, economic crises, for instance. What is it that that explains how under social crises the the suicide rate also uh, um, uh, rises. Sorry, I did. I I think I may have said something mistaken just now a moment ago. Uh, under the uh, under in the wartime, the suicide rate falls. Of course, there is a pulling together of people because there is a sense of solidarity. It rises right. during times of economic crises. Right, and so that and that alone that alone is a is a kind of uh, let's say a surprising finding, because you might think that during a war people are very depressed and therefore they might be more likely to commit suicide. And he found something counterintuitive, which is always what sociologists are looking for, uh, something that's startling. And he found that actually the suicide rate goes down because even though people are going through a very difficult time, because uh, of the, the the difficult circumstances, they actually come together and support each other, right? And he also found something interesting specifically about religion, right? About the suicide rates in different countries, and he connected that to religion. What, what was that about? Well, he did something very clever there as a scientist and a statistician. He wanted to figure out the effects of different religions on the suicide rate. Um, and so... 
he did the clever he had the clever idea of well okay switzerland is interesting because there are protestant cantons and catholic cantons and so we can look at and also we could we can figure out where there are um uh, places where catholicism predominates protestantism and even we can look at what happens with jews and he did find significant connect, uh, relationship between the suicide rate and the predominance of one or another religion. And so he reasoned from this, uh, I mean, we can't go into the detail now, but basically the idea was some religions, and he had in particular Catholicism in mind, are particularly effective at generating social cohesion. And so under those conditions, he found a, a lower suicide rate than where he thought uh, Protestantism, with its strong individualism, the strong idea of the individual uh, lay believer being, in in a way, responsible for his or her own life, uh, in very dramatic ways, that was a kind of had a kind of socially dissol dissolving a kind of effect that that he thought of as what he called anomic. Uh, or even um, isolating. That's to say that individuals were thrown back on themselves. So this kind of connection between the, 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 the doctrine and the effects on social solidarity was um, a preoccupation in this book. Right, right. And uh, speaking of religion, which scholars of religion influenced Durkheim's thinking on the subject? Well, he was—he uh, had a kind of transformation of um, his interests, or kind of uh, aha moment. You know, uh, suddenly felt that he had found something new and important in the mid nineteen nineties. From eighteen nineties, sorry, eighteen nineties. Yes, uh, where he was um, very um, interested by uh, the a certain. Um, Protestant theologian think writer called Robertson Smith, Scottish, who had found interesting things in a book called The Religion of the Semites about the ways in which, according to Smith, the the ancient uh, Semites had had united around communal communal meals, for example, eating together. He was very interested in the idea of collective rituals. Uh, and he found that in Smith, uh, among other places, which inspired him to think about the ways in which religion brings people together and reinforces their social solidarity. Right. And um, uh, what was the basic evidence that Durkheim used to analyze religion in his book, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life? Well, we'll come to that book now. So um, <laughs> the, the, the thing is, what Durkheim did not do, which is what other great writers and sociological writers about religion did do, like, for instance, uh, Max Weber, his contemporary, he didn't write about religion much. In that book, he didn't write about religion in his own time. He thought that, and this is very questionable, but not absurd, he thought, if we want to examine something so huge, important world, of such world historical importance as, let's say, religion. Maybe what we should do is try and examine the problem, the question, from the 
from the in its most elementary forms. And by the way, the book, this is an interesting point, the book, which is called The Elementary Forms of Religious Life in English, in French, the title, the word elementary is translated as elementary, is élémentaire, which has two meanings, actually. It either means elementary or elemental. And in one sense, uh, that ambiguity is important because in one sense, he's interested in the element, in seeing religion in its elemental form, that is to say, in its simplest uh, version that, that one could think of as having become aggregated and rendered, rendered ever more complex as, as society moved forward and became ever more advanced and complicated. And so he had the idea of looking at religion in what he thought of as its uh, elemental forms, as to say, in the form of small-scale societies that would be, uh, on, his, in, in, on his assumption, the earliest societies where religion was born. So here he was making a kind of evolutionary assumption that the earliest societies were also the simplest and at the origins of the development of, of, of later religions. And um, that was very much a product of his time that uh, in which, you know, there was this idea of social evolution from the simple to the complex. And he thought of uh, early societies as being the simple laboratory in which you could study religion at work. Right. And and where did he choose uh, uh, to, um, to, to study religion? In other words, what did he pick as his laboratory, as you say, right. uh, to look at this quote-unquote elementary or, or, or simple form of religion? Right. Well... Um... As you can see, a lot of this was going to be uh, contested by later writers and anthropologists, especially the idea that, that, that any societies are simple, for instance. But nevertheless, um, he had this idea, which you can find really throughout the history of anthropology, that studying small-scale tribal societies tells you, uh, gives you answers of general significance about human life and societies in general. And he uh, looked for, of course, he couldn't examine the earliest societies uh, way back in, in the mists of time, in the, the earliest stages of human, human development. But you could look at tribal societies in your own society, making the assumption that they will tell you something about uh, how small-scale small societies work. And so he relied in the book upon evidence now, remember, social anthropology or the study of, uh, anthrop uh, of tribal societies, which is what it, it began as, um, was not yet really in place. There weren't yet any professional anthropologists. But there were lots of, or increasingly many, writings of people who visited such societies and studied them, missionaries and explorers and others who had written about such societies. And so he relied in particular upon studies of writings about Australian Aboriginal societies and uh, what was then known from, similarly from reports uh, of uh, 
Indian societies, native Indian societies in, in the United States. And so these were the societies he used in some considerable detail based on these reports. In particular, there were two writers called Spencer and Gillen, who had written about Australia, in which he relies very heavily. And so a lot of the material in the book, the empirical material, is description of their rituals and their, um, uh, their, their practices, especially their ritual practices, uh, when organized around, organized around totemism, which was the um, prevailing um, uh, uh, form of um, mythical belief that were, was, was at work in such societies. Right. And w w what did he believe, uh, what did um, Durkheim argue uh, was the basic nature of the system of totemism um, that was practiced in Australian Aboriginal societies? Well, here is where it became very controversial to his um, reader, <laughs> readers. He uh, was very struck by the fact that these societies would have practices, and in particular rituals, which involved the worship of, the treating of as sacred, um, the totem, which would very often be, let's say, an animal, or even a vegetable, or even something like something inert, like a like a stone, that there would be sacred beings uh, that would be, you might think, quite common or garden or, or uh, unremarkable, which would be treated as sacred and venerated, and uh, uh, at the center of these rituals. Um, of very diff various many diff different kinds of rituals, all of which would take place uh, with dancing and 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 the use of ritual objects and 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 uh, other kinds of collective activity that would have the effect of um, bringing the, the the members of the clan together in in um, in in ritual activity, and that led him to think about, well, what is sacredness? What is this? Uh, what is the feature that renders this object of worship and sacrifice, because he was also, that was also part of the story, um, sacrifice as well as, as um, celebratory and, and, not, and, and funeral, funerary rituals as well, collective expressions of joy or grief or um, uh, uh, supplication to 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 the gods this would be a um or to the ancestors this would be a a focus of ritual activity that was um treated as worthy of veneration and generating all kinds of emotions of of um both fear and and extreme awe and admiration these emotions he thought of were very much at the center of what sacredness is. So sacredness, and this was his striking thought, sacredness in these societies was oriented to these objects, these beings, I mean, like uh, a vegetable or an animal that was treated as sacred. And his idea was, well, that's that's what, uh, if that's what sacredness is, that tells you something about what religion is. Religion is about um, collective activity, binding people together in a 
community in a in a in a social group oriented towards the um emotion involving emotions special emotions of 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 awe and and also fear directed at that sacred entity um and the point of real difficulty here or controversy was in saying that about these tribal societies which at that time were called primitive we don't do that anymore when talking about um, other societies but that was then the assumption the idea that religion consists in venerating what is sacred but in this case the sacred is plainly something common or common or garden or, or, or you know their material in the world and suggesting that that's what religion in general might be he obviously as you might imagine raised hackles raised serious worry among religious people of his own time who believed in god Right. So so Catholic readers, let's say, in France were horrified at the suggestion that at the heart of all religion was some kind of veneration of the sacred based on emotional attachments rather than based on the belief that there is uh, actual spiritual entity that exists in the world that they are in a relationship with. Right. Or not even in the world, outside the world, in the, in a transcendent realm. Right. Uh, and this um, was indeed the problem that uh, one Catholic <laughs> writer, one Catholic writer in criticism of Durkheim said, who would continue to pray to a being uh, if he believed that, uh, you know, it was just a, an invention? I mean, a human invention. Who would who would do that? In other words, he thought he saw Durkheim as challenging the very basis of um, spiritual belief by, for example, Catholics. Uh, Durkheim's response to this was, in a way, mischievous. I would say he wasn't mischievous. He was a deeply serious person, and in a way, um, his response was a kind of. Uh, I don't know if mischief is quite the right word, maybe ironic. He basically said, look, I'm a sociologist. Don't ask me theological questions. In other words, to the Catholic believer, he would say, I'm not challenging uh, Catholicism. I'm offering a sociological account of what I have perceived in Australia and in North America. Um, I'm giving you an account of the sacred so far as um, a sociologist can. Um, and you could say that that was disingenuous, but I don't think it was because, in a sense, he also said something else. He claimed not to be engaged in, uh, you know, kind of dispelling illusions. He, he didn't, like Freud, think of religion as an illusion. Um, at least in any straightforward sense. He didn't think, or like Marx, he, he didn't think that religion was just an ideology concealing um, human purposes. He even wrote more than once that all religions are true in their fashion. 
he respected religion. He thought that religion was a very, very important um, feature of social life that was uh, whose extraordinary persistence over millennia of human life had to be explained and was of the view that if you just assumed that people were being, um, you know, misled by uh, illusions by the powerful or by their own, um, uh, you know, mistakes, uh, as some uh, writers at the time were arguing, um, you could never explain its persistence or its power. So he was very interested by now, by the time he'd written, started to think about this, in religion's power, in the, the way in which religion grips its believers, in which it offers them, um, it offers them the idea of re, 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 reviving their lives, rendering their lives meaningful, giving their lives a meaning. Um, the whole idea, in other words, of religion as a, as a transformative and, and um, animating and reanimating uh, uh, set of practices that, 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 that makes life worth living. That was, he was, he was very uh, aware of all that and wanted to make sense of it. And so he said both that relig- all religions are true in their fashion and have to be understood as being extremely important and central to most people's lives, but also to offer an account of it which offended believers. Right. So he really was in a kind of peculiar position, sort of politically, socially at the time. And I think to a certain extent, even among contemporaries today, I think it's a rather uh, distinct position that on the one hand, he recognizes the awesome power of religion to bring people together, to get people to do things that they might otherwise uh, not want to do or not imagine that they could do. And at the same time, he essentially was saying, well, religion is a human construct, that this is not something that there's a spiritual being out there somewhere in this universe and transcendent being, whatever, that people are worshiping or being connected to. No, this is something that human beings have contrived. But at the same time, once it has been contrived, so to speak, it's something that could give them profound uh, um, joy, profound uh, strength, profound um, 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 uh, enrichment. Well, we haven't yet reached what he actually had to say about what it was that could explain the the veneration and 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 preoccupation of religious believers with the sacred. What was it, after all, that explained all this um, apparatus, all this religious ritual that that was so important and central to people's lives? I mean, he was very interested in, 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 as it were, the, the modern versions, the modern uh, equivalents, you might say, of, of those rituals that he'd studied in Australia. I mean, we were all, you know, the Catholic Mass, or whatever it might be, the Jewish, the, all the Jewish practices of, uh, you know, ritual practices, they were all, in a way, to be understood as um, orientations uh, to the sacred. So what was his account of what it is that's sacred? And his answer to this which was very, um, in a way, uh, not just challenging but provocative, but in a way out, uh, outraged people, he, his answer was society. 
that in a sense, when people are worshipping the uh, their gods or their totems, uh, they were essentially um, expressing in in religious terms their connection with their society, and so the, it was really the social um, symbolism, or rather the social reverent of the symbolism of religion that he was focusing on, and. Uh, this, um, uh, in a way, was is remains a kind of challenge to the believer. I mentioned before that my study on Durkheim, when I did my dissertation uh, on this thinker, was the great anthropologist Evans Pritchard. Now, Evans Pritchard once wrote, Evans Pritchard became a Catholic, very believing Catholic, nonetheless deeply interested in Durkheim. And he once wrote, that it was Durkheim, not the savage, meaning, you know, ironic term for the primitive, it was Durkheim, not the savage, who made society into a god. (laughs) (laughs) So that was Evans Pritchard's response to Durkheim's argument. In other words, (laughs) nevertheless, he regarded the work as a work of genius and very important. I mean, as a challenge to a believer it it stands there as a as an alternative account which of course if you're a catholic you don't accept yeah it reminds me a little bit that evans pritchard's pritchard's response reminds me a little bit of uh uh, uh something that peter berger who is uh-huh. uh, a very uh, or I don't very, but a devout uh, Protestant, uh, and who, who also who you know decades later studied religion, and he basically said when you think about the relationship between the sociology of religion or the social scientific understanding of religion versus the you know the religious. Uh, you know the, the 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 devout's perspective. He basically said, "Well, we don't know, you know, if when Moses went up, you know, the mountain, if he actually, you know, spoke to God or whatever." We, all sociologists could do is describe the the physical setting of you know Moses going up the mountain and what Jewish people standing, you know, at Mount Sinai, how they responded and so on. We can't tell you, you know, whether or not he actually communed with God, but we could tell you he went up the mountain, then he came down, and this is how the society uh, uh, that, you know, that he was a part of responded to his uh, uh, claims of, you know, divine revelation. Right, right. Well, I've just remembered, by the way, uh, more precisely what the Catholic believer, uh, Gustave Bellot, he was called, said in, in relation to Durkheim's argument. He said, who would continue to pray if he believed that all he was doing was addressing a collectivity that wasn't listening? Right, right. So basically, for Durkheim, if you think of, to put it in sort of contemporary terms, maybe, if you think about a higher power, for Durkheim, the higher power was the, the collective, that, that when people were coming together for these very impassioned ceremonies, they were essentially celebrating and strengthening the social group, that that was actually what they were venerating and what they were trying to strengthen. Right. Well, now, but the way to think about that is you say that that's what they essentially was doing. were doing. And you might, that might mean that's what they were really doing and they weren't doing the other thing. Uh, 
And when I said before, not entirely accurately, that he was being mischievous, he was being careful because he wanted to say, well, okay, that's what I can tell you. I'm a sociologist. Now, if you want to say that there's a truth there in the beliefs about the spiritual realm, about the transcendent realm, I'm not in a position to disagree with you. That's not my field. I'm not a theologian. Um, you can do with that response what you wish. I mean, sometimes Durkheim seems to be saying, you know, what's really going on is what I'm telling you, and the other thing is illusion. And yet he goes out of his way to say to saying that he's not saying it's an illusion in the sense that it's false. Um, this is a this is a a problem uh, of interpretation. It's it, what it's one of the things that makes this book a classic. I think that this is never resolved by Durkheim. Religious believers, including um, Evans Pritchard, of course, but including also others, other. Uh, believing sociologists who are Catholic or whatever have found his work enormously um, uh, important. Uh, I'm thinking of Mary Douglas, for instance, and Robert Bellar, who, while, and, and also probably, probably Peter, Peter Berger, though I don't know what he thought about Durkheim. Peter Berger, by the way, was also Jewish by origin. I don't know if you knew that. So kind of interesting. I, I did not know that. So mm. I, I was told by a very orthodox, my first sociology professor, actually, uh, uh, who is an orthodox Jew, um, he told me that, that Peter Berger was, quote, a from Protestant, from being a Yiddish term for very religious. So he said that Peter Berger was a very religious Protestant, but I, I did not know that he had um, uh, Jewish uh, origins, um, but I, I think it's interesting um, what you're what you're describing. And you know that, as you say, you could interpret Durkheim's words in in, in several different ways. That he basically said, "I'm giving you uh, a social, um, you know, scientific, a sociological explanation for how religion works." I'm not adjudicating. I'm not deciding whether or not God really exists, whether or not the faithful are really connecting to God. I'm telling you here on earth, this is how things look. This is how things work. But as you know, it could be interpreted in multiple ways. You could say that he's being judicious. He's being um, circumspect. He's not making a judgment about theology, about the existence of God. He's he's kind of keeping in his lane as a social scientist. Or you could say that he's just being clever. And of course, he didn't really believe that God exists. And he thought that that was, you know, a ridiculous thing, but he didn't want to seem, um, you know, socially uh, provocative. And therefore he claimed that he was just focusing on the observable facts of religion. Right. There's, uh, there was a French mathematician uh, called Laplace much earlier on, who, uh, at the time of Napoleon, who was uh, similarly accused or thought to be an atheist or thought to be denying God. He was a mathematician. And his response to this accusation was to say, I have no need of that hypothesis. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, um, you mentioned early on that there were many um, challenges to Durkheim's um, 
um, uh, elementary forms of religious life. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about what some of those uh, shortcomings were? Ah, well, I, I don't know if, if we want to go too much into detail here, because there is, of course, I mean, as I said before, between Durkheim and, and now, there is the massive uh, accumulation of the ethnographic record of uh, not just only of Australian Aboriginal societies, but also of uh, North American Indian societies. And so, in a way, the, um, the, the, the basis on which... Uh, he argued about tribes and clans, and the information on which he was relying was very much um, of its time. Um, but there is, it, it really is very interesting, and I haven't mentioned this until now, um, he gathered around him a group of researchers, a group of colleagues, um, some of them students, some of them uh, just colleagues, uh, around a journal called the Année Sociologique, which published 12 volumes between 1898 and 1912. And these consist, consist of masses of information uh, as, it was, as it was accumulating in those years. But above all, and this comes back to your question, not so much in terms of, you know, did he get it right about the this or that tribe or this or that clan, but more about the the mechanisms he thought were at work, the 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 sociological theory of account of the of of, of ritual and the way in which it works and how it. Uh, and, and its effects. And this um, is where the important lies, not in terms of the ethnographic detail. I do remember uh, an anthropologist, Rodney Needham, once saying to me in Oxford when I was working on all of this, that it could well be that every empirical proposition in Durkheim's book, Elementary Forms of Religious Life, is false. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, it remains a very great work of social theory, a social explanation. And that's, that's I think, what I'd say about the, the connection with the actual ethnographic record. Though I have no doubt that the um, descriptions of ceremonies that he gleaned from, um, and, and indeed even the clarif classification of the different rites, different rituals, uh, was accurate enough, because I don't think anyone has suggested that Spencer, Spencer and Gillen and the others were making things up. Right, but maybe they didn't, as you know, Western outsiders in in Aboriginal Australia or in Native American you know culture, they may have misunderstood, misinterpreted, misclassified, you know, some of the details of what they were observing. Yes, of course, that issue of being an outsider, Western outsider, uh, I mean, survives to this day. I mean despite all the extremely advanced ethnographic, uh, you know, techniques of ethnographic study, um, you, you know, uh, anthropologists are still outsiders, whatever you say. And so that uh, remains to be a problem. Um, it is interesting that Durkheim's great uh, 
uh, one of his greatest um, collaborators, and indeed his nephew, Marcel Mauss, wrote a manual of ethnography, very much concerned with this issue of, of how you get inside the worldview of, a, of, of, of the society you're studying. Yes, it's a it's a it's a very big problem. It's a very big problem. I, I found it in my own experience as someone who grew up in a very uh, uh, orthodox Jewish background, and then ended up sort of leaving that community and then kind of turning back around, trying to analyze that very community, that there's all sorts of complications because even if you were once a part of the community, if you have made the journey out, then you're not in quite the same status as someone who's still a part of it. You're a semi-outsider. You're a semi-outsider. Right, right. Well, semi-outsiders are not always so beloved by insiders. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so it, it could be yeah. a problem. But speaking of the uh, um, people, uh, researchers, um, sort of biogra- biographical um uh, you know their upbringing and their their social status. You touched on this a drop before, but um, I'm wondering if you could say a little more about what you think the relationship between Durkheim's Jewish background, very Jewish, even rabbinic background, many rabbis in his family tree. Uh, what's the relationship between that and his own understanding of religion in general? This is a very interesting question, and in my book, uh, and I've been criticized for this, I basically didn't touch it. And the reason I didn't touch it, uh, there might be several. Uh, being Jewish myself, maybe I was a bit nervous of touching it. But um, the main problem I had when writing that book was that there was no real evidence. But there is a very interesting young scholar at uh Princeton University called Taylor Winfield, who has written about this question. Um, There is a certain amount of literature on it. Um, And it's easy to say, you know, too simply, too simple things, things that are too simple, simple minded. But I do think, um, for one thing, the focus on social solidarity and the relative under understressing of belief and theology uh, is important. Uh, Durkheim grew up in a in a in a obviously in a in a, in a very cohesive, tightly bound together family. Uh, he was very conscious throughout his uh, you know childhood uh, of the of the rituals uh, that, that 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 of course they engaged in, and indeed was very good at keeping in touch with his family. Uh, and the, the whole, um, as it were, rabbinic world was well uh, was very familiar to him. He also, uh, in his first book, The Division of Labor, there are a great number of references to the Pentateuch and to the, and to the um, uh, lit, you know, the, the literature of um, uh, rabbinic discussions. Uh, in the, the Talmud, I mean, it's it's actually clear that he was deeply familiar with that whole uh, world. Um, and now, uh, how, to what extent you can link that with the theory, I, I don't know. I hesitate even now to speculate. I think, um, as I say, there are very interesting, there is some interesting literature on it, which which people might want to look at if they're interested. 
Absolutely. Well, um, there's so much more to talk about about Durkheim and about um, uh, his uh, mas- one of his masterpieces, Elementary Forms of Religious Life, but we have run out of time, so uh. we're going to have to leave it there for today. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it. That concludes our program. Thanks for listening and have a great day.